Welcome to my first ever podcast about politics, communication strategies, and their effect on the public sphere. Rather than delay or belabor, I'm going to get right into it. Now, what if I told you I could change your mind on a fundamental personal issue without the use of any real kind of factual evidence? Ha! Chances are you'd laugh at the audacity of such a claim. And Mexico will pay for the wall. Now, what if I told you it's already happened and you didn't even realize it? So this is the whole point of this podcast. I'm going to walk you through how it has been done by looking at at two of America's most influential political strategists in the last 100 years. This podcast analyzes the behavior and strategies of George Creel, chairman of the Committee on Public Information, and Donald Trump, America's 45th president. So it's kind of interesting. When Trump ran for and won the U.S. presidency in 2016, many were shocked and surprised. And, I mean, there were others who absolutely weren't. They were sure he was going to win. So I balked at the very idea of it. And lo and behold, on November 8, Americans voted and, well, he won. So critics and pundits aside, Donald Trump will likely go down in American history as one of the country's most effective propagandists. George Creel's role as chairman also interested me as he managed to get the CPI's message to the majority of Americans. As for Trump, well, he's a man who found his way into the hearts of millions of Americans. Accomplished as he was in winning the U.S. election, the strategy behind his claims, especially that of immigration, is what interested me and drove my research. It was a mere eight days after Trump was elected and Oxford dictionaries declared the term, quote, post-truth, or as Stephen Colbert likes to call it, truthiness, as the word of the year. Since then, academics, politicians, analysts, teachers, and would-be podcasters (laughs) have debated the strategy and its application in politics and its place in the world. Post-truth, according to Oxford Dictionaries, is about playing to one's feelings, regardless of the facts presented to them. How can a politician manipulate someone's feelings for for political gain? Well, my thoughts come to this idea. If my feelings are what drive my beliefs, then does it really matter what they say to me, so long as it verifies what I'm already feeling? The answer? It doesn't. In the post-truth context, what matters is I know how you feel about an issue, and I'm going to use any piece of information to magnify that feeling. In contrast, propaganda has a few definitions, or, I mean, you could call them tactics too, that appear different to post-truth. The best and shortest definition I found came from Slovak Republic professor Erika Moravchikiva. She calls it a deliberate and systematic effort to shape understanding. Basically, it's a method of behavioral change through information control, manipulation, and dissemination. 
1917, when the Committee on Public Information, led by reporter George Creel, wanted to guide Americans into the First World War, an insane amount of information, and I mean insane amount of information, was disseminated to the public. We are talking posters, bulletins, speeches, recipes even to conserve food or use alternate ingredients, and more. Most of us are familiar with World War I posters, um, a lot of them calling Americans to halt the Hun or beat back the Hun with liberty bonds to support the war effort against the Germans. Those strategies also created hate and enmity toward German immigrants to the U.S. It's difficult to gain really a true understanding of the differences between post-truth and propaganda without actually looking at the strategies and analysis of each one. So some analysts claim there are important differences between the two. If you ask different people though, you may get a different answer. My mother, she's a social sciences academic in South Africa, calls post-truth just a bunch of lies. Some academics I've read call it bullshit. Others intertwine them within the same argument. So I guess I ask the question, are post-truth and propaganda dissimilar? Using immigration as the backdrop, I'm delving into the strategies of George Creel and Donald Trump to answer my question. Over the next 30 minutes, I'm going to take you on my journey to explore and understand post-truth and propaganda through an in-depth review of the theories and the experts who speak about them. I'm going to use real-world comparisons, such as immigration speeches and social media updates by Donald Trump. I also take in language around immigration from George Creel and review the results of both men's strategies and their influence on Americans. Um, before I begin, I have a caveat. I have taken steps to remove my bias related to this question by researching expert books and peer-reviewed articles on both the tactics. I have delved into writers' expertise on each subject, and I couched my query under a communication theory called, you may not have heard of it, but it's called the spiral of silence. This is the big picture, an official television report to the what nation. What is the spiral of silence? Bear with me for a moment while I delve into the theory, as it's an important part of what we're discussing. Briefly, the spiral of silence is this political theory of public opinion posited by German academic Elisabeth Noella Neumann. So the theory suggests a group of people will vote in favor of what they perceive to be the most popular voice on a political issue. People who vote this way do this to avoid personal sanctions. So just to give you an idea, I think it's fair to say we've all had a moment in a group where, you know, someone says something that's controversial. Maybe we decide to hold our tongue on the matter, seeing passion in their statement. This is really because we fear reprisal. Now, it's important to note something here. It's the perception, not the actual popularity of public opinion that matters. If I am loud enough, and get people thinking my voice is the winning one, even if it isn't, the chances of them voting on my issue increase. In turn, the popular opinion becomes less dominant. It's kind of fascinating in a way. If done well, a minority of public opinion becomes the majority. I should mention that this isn't some new Fandangles theory. It was created in the 1970s 
and it remains an important part of current political debate. For now, I'm just going to add two important points about the spiral of silence. Firstly, if I can manipulate the public on an important topic, pundits and the media can potentially forecast the results of that manipulation, which can change the popular opinion. This is something I think Trump did exceptionally well, especially on the voter side of things. Secondly, there is an assumption that media play an important part in driving public opinion. Propaganda and post-truth come into play here as we compare tactics and messaging around immigration. George Creel also understood how important the media are to drive public opinion. Both strategists, whether they realized it or not, knew how to use tactics posited within the theory. There have been some suggested changes to the spiral of silence, so I'll let you know what those are now. In 2018, three academics, Stamatis, Pulakidakos, Anastasia Venetti, and Christos Fangonikolopoulos. Okay, just as a side note, I practiced their names a lot, and I probably still didn't get them right, but there you have it. So they analyzed how the spiral of silence has changed in today's cluttered digital media landscape. They suggest because of the high volume of multiple and varied opinions and channels, people may be more inclined to speak up on a hot issue, seeing so many different voices. This is where I disagree. Individuals who see a proliferation of opinions speak up because they feel safe to do so. The idea I think still works within Noella Neumann's original theory. I do agree, though, that these increases have led to a rise in conspiracy theories because of their tendency to oversimplify complex problems. Society, as we know, is full of complexities, and it is no less with immigration in America. The more one investigates, the more multifaceted it becomes. And this, this applied to me. I, I used to think immigration was a relatively new political and social issue in the United States. I guess for me, past images of immigrants converging on the Statue of Liberty on Ellis Island in the late 1800s and early 1900s appeared to celebrate America as, as the land of opportunity. This I now recognize to be a nice bit of propaganda. Immigration is an old issue in America. In 1790, an act allowed, quote, free whites in good moral standing to become citizens. In 1882, the General Immigration Act was implemented, which blocked the entry of, get this, idiots, lunatics, and convicts. Sorry, guys. Then, on February 5th, 1917, Congress approved an Immigration Act that required entrants to be able to read and write. It's interesting to note now that Ellis Island closed a few years after the 1917 Act passed. Interestingly, 100 years later, President Donald Trump changed American immigration policies and processes to favor a certain type of immigrant, mostly those with educated backgrounds, while demonizing others. In a 2019 immigration speech, Trump advocated for skilled immigrants rather than those who would take away jobs from the working class. Take a listen. 
and we want immigrants coming in. We cherish the open door that we want to create for our country. But a big proportion of those immigrants must come in through merit and skill. So, yeah, immigration as a political issue in the U.S. isn't new, and it's not going anywhere. This leads us to my question of comparing World War I propaganda and Donald Trump's post-truth within the context of immigration. My mother asked me why World War I and not World War II. Well, the Great War laid the foundation of modern American propaganda. In 1917, President Woodrow Wilson wanted to steer Americans to support entering the war. So he appointed George Creel, a journalist with a penchant for challenging political elite to run the Committee on Public Information. According to Jonathan Maxwell Hamilton, he wrote Manipulating, Manipulating the, masses, the Masses, Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson, Wilson and the and Birth of American, American Propaganda. Wilson was eager to reduce suspicion of this new agency, so he called it the Committee on Public Information. To make it sound more friendly, George Creel's tactics created the foundation of American propaganda, while also providing Americans with a reason to hate immigrants. As for working with Donald Trump's tactics, regardless of his critics and proponents, he steered political discourse to meet his political goals, and he succeeded. It was his very tactics that put the question of post-truth into the limelight. I mean, I'm doing this podcast about it. Despite being 100 years apart, George Creel and Donald Trump's strategies are an ideal comparison as they help us understand the differences between the tactics as both men influenced new methods in American politics. Their strategies and language help guide my findings. A note on my methods. My research included a broad look at propaganda and post-truth and I reviewed the works of proponents and theorists for each tactic. I also used peer-reviewed articles, news articles around post-truth, a great study on American immigration changes during Trump's presidency, speeches by Trump, as well as George Creel's personal telling and defense of his own actions with the CPI. I reviewed his 1920 book, How We Advertised America. Okay, hold on. Here's the full title. How, How we advertised, advertised America, America, the first, the first telling of the, of the amazing, amazing story of the Committee on Public, public Information that carried the gospel of Americanism, Americanism to every, every corner, corner of the globe. When you're a big deal, I think it gives you artistic license to title your book any way you want. I'm not a big deal, but if I was, this podcast would be called Post Truth and Propaganda What Gives. My, my journey, journey into, into the depths of communication theories and how, how I came, came out of it in the end, end by Jeffrey Hyden K. Almost, almost a master's, a master's graduate. graduate. I digress. To reduce as much bias as possible, I manually searched all of Donald Trump's 2016 Facebook posts on immigration. I then used an inductive search process, basically 
kind of allowing the information to come to me with a few keywords that I searched. So I did search words like immigration and immigrants for both Creole and Trump. You know, this was as much a discovery process as it was a quantitative search of keywords, as I also analyzed content within those statements. So words such as illegal, vulnerable, dangerous were also searched and compiled into a matrix. With George Creel's book, I searched foreign-born, alien, and internment. Analyzing Creel and Trump's strategies became an important part of my research as I faced a bit of a challenge. Trump far outstripped Creel in terms of the number of times he used key terms. So for instance, in Creel's 526 page book, he mentions immigrant only four times, while Trump's 2016 Facebook feed shows 48 mentions of immigration. The term foreign born in Creel's book showed some promise with 21 mentions, but it's, you know, spanned out throughout the entire book and not necessarily related to immigration at certain points. And with Trump, that term was barely used, if at all. So Trump's use of immigration in just one speech, his May 16, 2019 address to the nation dubbed modernizing, modernizing our, American our American system, system for, a for a stronger America, America, saw 13 mentions of immigrant and 24 mentions of immigration. This wasn't a deterrent for my project. It was kind of an inspiration. It confirmed ideas that Pulakidakos and friends hypothesized that information overload and conspiracies abound in today's digital media landscape. Trump flooded the media market with these terms. So to work with this challenge, studying the strategies of Creel and Trump's rhetoric and the results of their behavior helped shape my understanding and it provided a reliable comparison to both. Using these various materials and methods allowed me to, I mean, it allowed me to kind of triangulate the data. It also reduced my own bias and ensured I gathered robust materials to inform my question. What I found surprised me. Let's get into it. Creel and Trump strategies have deep roots within propaganda and post-truth, which starts with American media and how it functions. Both were well-versed on what the news media want or need to hear to get something printed or posted on video in today's world. This has to do with their experience. So with Hamilton, he takes an in-depth look at how Creel brought in experienced reporters to work for the CPI, himself being an experienced reporter, and how they took over the information pipeline in America. Creel mentions it as well. In Advertising America, he detailed how the CPI created daily bulletins to reach the masses across America and Europe. A well-known example of information dissemination comes in the form of the Four Minutemen, in which eager volunteers spoke for four minutes before a movie. The speeches were talking points scripted by the CPI with a focus on the committee's wartime goals. According to Creel, and I have to take this at face value, the four Minutemen had 75,000 volunteers, made seven and a half million speeches with an estimated reach of 134 million people. That's massive. Donald Trump, well, he brought in Steve Bannon, then head of far-right news organization Breitbart to run his campaign. 
Trump didn't have a committee like Creel at his helm. However, he understood how repetition and provocative statements guaranteed press coverage. Indeed, he spent half as much money as Hillary Clinton did in her run for America's top seat, and we all know the results there. Analyst Bharat Anand for the Harvard Business Review reminds us that some of the best marketing campaigns are done with very little marketing budgets. It's understanding the digital media landscape and the rules that govern media coverage that matters most. Trump knew this. Here's something that's interesting. A 2018 paper by authors Rudy Alamillo, Chris Haynes, and Raul Madrid break down how Trump framed immigration issues into four specific areas. So while my podcast is kind of an analysis of Trump's immigration messaging, it becomes useful in my research of George Creel 100 years earlier. I'm going to lay out the four frames to help us understand the processes of two of America's communicators. Episodic, Episodic frames. frames. This is a strategy where the communicator provides real-life examples of a situation. Trump's August 31, 2016 speech is a good example of this. Listen in. Includes incredible Americans like 21-year-old Sarah Root. The man who killed her arrived at the border, entered federal custody, and then was released into the U.S., think of it, into the U.S. community under the policies of the White House, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Weak, weak, weak policies. Weak and foolish policies. He was released again after the crime, and now he's out there at large. Thematic, Thematic frames. frames. These frames use statistics, or maybe generalities, to deliver complex information in a simple way to focus on an issue. Krill applied this in his Americanizers chapter to show Germans as good people who are giving of themselves for America. There's an important distinction here. Krill talks about Germans who were full of disloyalty that needed to be rid fully of Deutschstum. So for spelling, it's D-E-U-T-S-C-H-T-U-M. I probably uh, pronounced it wrong. I note that how we advertised America is Creel's personal defense of his actions with the CPI. Equivalency Equivalency frames. frames. A strategist applies equivalency frames by interlacing different terms of an issue that tend to mean the same thing. So for example, Trump would in one sentence use, quote, illegal immigrant, and then later on, quote, illegal alien in the same speech. The president effectively used equivalency frames in many of his speeches. However, the term illegal immigrant is applied the most. It's found in his speeches, his Facebook posts, on his videos, in the newspapers. I mean, it was subsequently repeated by mainstream and fringe media whenever he used it. Again, from Noella Neumann, The louder you are about something, the more it can sway someone's opinion. I'm just taking you back to that theory so we remind ourselves. Positive Positive and negative negative issue issue frames. frames. Here's what's interesting about this fourth set of frames. The tactic leads the audience into supporting a political or legal issue. 
So, okay, for okay, for example, Trump successfully applied negative frames on quote legal immigrants as people who broke the law by illegally entering the United States, almost to suggest that they were above the law. What that did was enhance support for the deportation of immigrants. It's interesting to note that negativity frames tend to be more effective in raising people's emotions. A positive frame would be something like speaking about an individual immigrant as being a hard worker who built a life for them and their family. Um, you know, Trump does use positive frames of immigrants in his speeches, but it's usually in the context to support one of his arguments about protecting Americans and having stricter immigration laws. I don't have an example of negative frames from Creel's book. However, his propaganda around the quote, Hun and protecting Americans created hate and fear against immigrants and non-English speakers. Now, this also led many states to implement laws around speaking English only in the public. It's an interesting point in his Americanizers and working with the foreign-born chapters that Creel tends to amplify foreign-born people who are not German. Pretending or ignoring the harmful effects of a strategy is the epitome of a propagandist. And that's coming up next. Enemy, Enemy propaganda. Under George Creel's leadership, the CPI's work became the blueprint of American propaganda and influenced American policy. Here's an interesting note on Creel from Hamilton's book that just kind of blew me away. As a reporter, before he headed the CPI, Creel openly campaigned to be a police commissioner or the police commissioner in Denver. And when he got the post, get this, he reported on his own actions. Now that takes gumption and it gives us a sense of the man. So here we are, Creel manipulated popular opinion and he played to people's biases, all within the two and a half years of CPI's operation. While the committee operated under a quote, voluntary censorship, it also issued millions of words in articles, bulletins, propaganda films, posters, telegrams, letters, and talking points, and a whole bunch more. These messages reached the far corners of America and Europe, and they were supported by laws against enemy alien criticism. Enemy propaganda. The CPI made propaganda wartime messaging part of the American zeitgeist all with the goal to beat back the Hun, to go to war, to raise funds for the effort, and to celebrate, in Creel's words, the quote, American experiment. The CPI was successful in its goals. It did an amazing job, but it also drove anger and hate against immigrants. To defend this, Creel kind of rails against so-called Americanizers and their hate for immigrants but he kind of doesn't take ownership for his actions in creating the distrust. He celebrates the sacrifice of the quote, foreign born for disregarding hate and for standing firm for America and suggests their effort was something that just had to be done. It was like a sacrifice just to prove that they're loyal. Creel was inspired by their quote, pathetic devotion to American causes. But then he negates the effects of enemy internment camps and states many people were acquitted of their charges after the fact, as if they were a necessary part of the war. 
His tendency was, I found, to minimize or ignore volatile results of his actions. I probably would have done the same. Helping us understand the CPI strategies is Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky with their book, Manufacturing, Manufacturing Consent, Consent, The Political, the political economy, economy of the Mass, the mass Media. media. This was first published in 1988. Here they lay out five filters that make up what they call a propaganda model. And there's four that I see can be applied to the CPI. These five filters are also shortened by analyst Joan Pedro in a 2011 study of the model. Ownership. Ownership. This is where profits, conglomeration, and large businesses drive news coverage. I don't see that applying to the CPI in this case, but we're going to keep going and you'll see what I mean. Dependence, Dependence on, on advertising, advertising revenue. revenue. I think this one's pretty clear. A company needs revenue to function, including news media, and advertisers can threaten to pull ads from a company which create an influence on the news. So for CPI's case, they were directed to spend as little taxpayers' money as possible, and the CPI gained so much support that corporations would sponsor CPI ads. This would benefit the newspaper revenues, and it did across the US. So this is where I think CPI did well. And myself, as a former community newspaper editor, I can attest to the veracity of this model. I'd say in the current state of the world, profits and large business models set the tone for the rest of most news media today. News, news sources. sources. Here, reporting becomes dependent on subject experts. These analysts, you know, they tend to influence public opinion. News also becomes dependent on official statements from government sources, and they're not going to divulge information that puts the government in a negative light. It's only going to be positive stuff. This filter is where the CPI was extremely successful. Media companies published CPI bulletins with little to no oversight. Actually, you know, the CPI was so good at this that news editors were eager to work with the committee and help them spread the word of joining the fight. During the early parts of America's involvement, some editors even agreed to a proposed censorship bill, but that's a story for another podcast, I would say. Countermeasures. So these are threat mechanisms, and they're designed to bring either financial or legal ramifications against news media. Creel states he never did this. Instead, the CPI focused on their, you know, their voluntary censorship. But if you were a German publication in those days, it was tough. In those days, you know, Germans were considered enemy aliens. And any publication that, that criticized the American government would face government and social sanctions. Convergence, Convergence in the, in the dominant, dominant ideology. ideology. This final filter, and I see it as an important one, becomes an us versus them strategy. And it taps into people's morals, their biases, and stereotypes. If I had an award for the most successful influencer on this podcast, it would be George Creel and the CPI. I mean, sure, they were pushing people to war, but the CPI managed to enter the homes of every single American whose identities became one of supporting the war in a righteous defense of the American way. Anyone who spoke otherwise was an enemy of the state. I'm applying the propaganda model filters to the work of the CPI and news media. 
However, I say they apply in today's post-truth world. Ownership conglomeration and the dependence on advertising revenue are fundamental systems of social media and digital companies because, well, they rely on ad revenues. The more users stay on a website, the more opportunity the company has to reach them with ads. If a post-truth story keeps people on the site longer, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's true, a lie, or misleading, or anything else for that matter. Speaking of post-truth, Donald Trump's speeches are filled with those immigration frames we talked about earlier. The man was a juggernaut. I mean, he posted on social media, he got the press to repeat his provocative statements, and he was out there. He used whatever medium was available to him to confirm his message. Here's where I think Herman and Chomsky missed out in their propaganda model. And, you know, maybe that's just the sign of the times because of the year. The more the media print and report on outrageous or provocative statements, the more they benefit the person they're reporting on. Oh, what a crowd. What a beautiful crowd. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. That's a lot of people, Phoenix. That's a lot of people. Thank you very much. Thank you. So if Donald Trump posted a story from alt-right news organization Breitbart, the press would report on it. If he called illegal immigrants dangerous to Americans regardless of statistical analysis, news media would report it. They played right into his strategies, and I don't think they even realized it. Anand puts it best. Despite hindsight, the press would likely cover the 2016 U.S. election the same way if they were to do it all over again. To cover a story or not to cover a story. That's no longer the question if either option benefits a propagandist. Ahem, I mean post-truth-ist. One name that kept coming up in my research is Peter Pomerantsev. He's a Soviet-born British journalist and makes compelling arguments about the veracity of post-truth. His stuff is fascinating. In 2014, he wrote a book called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. It's about 21st century Russia and how the government's rule is changing global truths. Now, in 2019, he wrote, This is not propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality, which became an integral part of my research. Pomerantsev captures the essence of post-truth. First, you start with an ideology. Everything you do, all the messages you send, the social media posts, the press releases, the media you manipulate, the websites you recreate or use, all of these go to supporting your ideology. Speaking truth, half-truth, or even no truth becomes irrelevant. Everything you do is designed to support that ideology. It's fascinating. Now, in Donald Trump's case, it didn't matter if he shared a New York Times story about an illegal immigrant who killed an innocent American, or if he quoted a story of questionable repute. The message supported his ideology of the dangerous immigrant who needed to be deported in order to protect Americans. If a news organization covered what Trump stated as false or a lie, he would call the organization out as being fake news. 
If they didn't cover his statements, he would say mainstream elite media did not care or want to talk about the story. This tactic is the MO of Russian strategies around the conflict in Ukraine, explains Pomerantsev. It's also what Trump did. This strategy is complemented by flooding media channels with information with as much as possible on whatever channel possible as long as it meets the strategy's goals. Analysts, reporters, politicians, philosophers, they kind of all call this strategy a complete realignment of the truth, making it all but impossible to determine what is real or even have a sense of the reality of a situation. Donald Trump understood this when discussing immigration. Researching his immigration posts on Facebook in 2016 also helped realize the influence he had on followers. Whichever immigration frame he used, it helped enhance his message, which was then repeated by his followers. It helped foster anger and resentment and distrust of organizations like the New York Times and Washington Post, but it also fostered anger towards immigrants. Truth was whatever Donald Trump wanted it to be. Philosopher Lee McIntyre, in his 2018 book, Post-Truth, elaborates how, in the post-truth world, feelings take precedence over facts. McIntyre and Pomerantsev say it's a subversion of facts that completely negate one's ability to have a realistic debate about an issue, and in this case, it's immigration, or at least in my study. The public sphere becomes disenchanted and it starts to fall into a nothing is real attitude. And I can't say I blame them. So how do we reconcile the differences between propaganda and post-truth? There are subtle differences. I mean, propaganda at first appears to use strategies that manipulate and misrepresent information to meet one's goals. While post-truth appears to play with a person's feelings to reach an end. What I noticed, however, is that despite the time difference, Creel and Trump effectively applied strategies of both tactics. The differences are so subtle that I see propaganda and post-truth as the same thing. They're just used in different contexts. During my research, I often wondered how George Creel would act if he lived during the 2016 election and was in charge of Donald Trump's campaign. So based on his behavior and strategies with the CPI, my guess is Creel would have used whatever tool was available to him. As for Donald Trump, his prolific use of social media, provocative statements to garner media attention, repetition, and political framing around immigration proved he is one of America's greatest propagandists. It would, it would be an interesting exercise to imagine what these two would say to each other if they were in the same room to compare notes. I just want to clarify something. My assessment here is an analysis of Creel and Trump's behaviors and strategies within the context of immigration in the United States. When Donald Trump rose to power, he brought in people with a strong understanding of the American immigration bureaucracy. Migration Policy Institute analyst Sarah Pierce points to a multitude of policy changes that were made under Trump's leadership. Among them, was the increase of thousands of immigration enforcement personnel at the Mexico border. There was also the easing of rules, giving immigration judges more freedom to expedite cases 
for deportation. Trump's speeches mentioned the abuse of women and children when they crossed the border. By the second year of his tenure as president, the White House removed protections of minors that were, at the time, in the best interest of the child. Trump used language that fomented fear and prejudice in the name of American safety. And he claimed it was to protect migrants, but then created laws that gave them less protections. In Creel's case, American hate for immigrants increased. Internment camps were built to protect Americans from the enemy, and calls to defend against the Hun were used regularly. Hamilton points out that the CPI subverted democratic debate by ignoring facts that were incongruent with its own goals. It was more concerned with fanning the flame of people's feelings about the German enemy than for allowing open debate. This strategy is no different than a post-truthist's methods. The American elite have often misled, lied, or provided false narratives around political issues. There's many examples in Hamilton's book that, you know, that are worth checking out. Politicians have for years recognized the importance of leveraging theories like the spiral of silence for political gain, and Donald Trump is no different. It's clear to me that these methods are intertwined. Only now you know the rest of the story. So if you ask me now, are propaganda and post-truth dissimilar? My answer is a resounding no. Taking it further, I actually see the debate as a distraction from what the elites are trying to do. Naming post-truth as the word of the year is a great way to waste our time. One piece I read, which was inspired by Oxford Dictionary's announcement, goes into great depth to define how post-truth sits in relation to a lie an unwitting false statement, and a deliberate misrepresentation. That's a couple thousand words I'm never going to get back. A failing I found by analysts, including Herman and Chomsky, McIntyre, Hamilton, and Pomerantsev, was their assumption about democratic standards. It's kind of like rules of engagement. Think of it as everyone assuming to have an understanding of the democratic process. Maybe... Everyone uses fact as part of the rhetorical discussion to ensure healthy debate. Propagandists and post-truthists, ahem, do not play by those rules. Rather, they work within their own priorities, which are often at odds with what they state. George Creel was tasked with getting Americans pumped about the war. Anything that stood in the way was an inconvenience. Donald Trump wanted to use immigration as a stepping stone to reach the White House, and applying the right framing to meet that need was the best way he could do that. Creel and Trump influenced American politics greatly. Indeed, they changed how Americans felt and voted on immigration. What I think about this? What a colossal waste of time. The fallout from propaganda and post-truth are that the population are being fed malarkey. In this case, to support an elite group, who deem themselves as ones who know best. The strategies we have discussed foment anger and they water the roots of uncertainty. It's no surprise to me then that conspiracy theories abound. We can call these strategies whatever we want, but in the end, as some analysts like to say, it's total bullshit. Thank you. This podcast was written, produced, and edited by Jeffrey Hayden Kaye. 